It's Dr. Stu's podcast at drstuespodcast.com. Subscribe on iTunes so you never, ever miss an episode of Dr. Stu's podcast. For Dr. Stuart Fishbein, I'm Brian Whitman. Welcome in to podcast number 69. 69, Brian. The podcast that just keeps going. No jokes. And going. No jokes. Yeah. I, don't, I don't have to do a 69 you can You can play this one forwards or backwards. It'll sound the same. That's exactly <laughs> right. Welcome to number 69. If you've recently found Dr. Stu's podcast here at drstuespodcast.com, check out all the old shows that you haven't heard yet. We got a lot of people who put it on their Facebook or send it out on Twitter. And uh, young moms or young women who are thinking about being a mom, they are in large numbers getting turned on to Dr. Stu's podcast. Dr. Stu is an OBGYN. And uh, he's very involved in the home birthing movement. And we've talked about that a number of times. We have a guest today on number 69. We have Anna Paula Markell. She's a childbirth educator. What does that mean, Anna? It means um, I educate women and their partners in regards to birthing and postpartum choices. Yeah, welcome to the show, Anna. It's, it's a it's a pleasure to have you on here. I've been uh, I've been at your facility a million times. It's nice to have you in uh, Brian and mine and John, our producer John's facility for once. But uh, it's really an honor because because you have been in the forefront of bringing normalcy to birth and bringing education to women about their choices. Again, like me, you are an advocate not necessarily for one form of birthing. You're an advocate for honest, informed consent and the right of women to choose their own path. And your uh, facility, why don't you tell people a little bit about Binny Birth? Because ever since I began uh, being involved with midwives and you founded Binny Birth in what year? And it's been on the forefront of things. Thank you. Um, Binny Birth was actually born in my living room. There was, there isn't still any business plan to it. Um, it's a very grassroots kind of idea. My Background is in fashion. I never thought that I would have um, a business or work with childbirth at all. Um, I truly came to this because um, I fell in love with an American guy, moved to the United States, and had Fr babies. From the country of? Brazil. Ooh, how nice. Which is, you know, extremely high cesarean rate. You have a very beautiful, sexy accent. Thank you. I think it's very appropriate for show 69. <laughs> Brian, yeah, Brian, Brian, Brian's been hitting on our guests lately. We're going to have yeah. to have a talk. Have I been doing that? Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, we're going to have a seminar on sexual harassment. Uh, <laughs> let's have it next after week. the seminar. Or, yeah, let's have it. Right, because yeah. we want to protect let's Dr. Postpone. Stu's podcast from being sued. By, yes, by, we want to protect that by yeah, our let, guests. Let's postpone that episode. Okay, fine. <laughs> so now uh, you've got a, a pretty significant relationship with someone who's real famous who supports home birthing, named Ricky Lake. Yes. It is a it is um, a professional love affair. I met Ricky and Abby, her partner for the business of being born, when the the first business of being born was basically already done. Um, and it was a total chance. I was with a, a midwife friend from Brazil who is in the movie, and we were at a conference. And of course, I knew Ricky was making the movie. Everybody was expecting it um, and very curious to see it. And we met them. I uh, met them very briefly, and they left a copy of the you know an, an edit completely unpolished finished just for this midwife to see um, we couldn't find a place to see and she had to catch up 
plane back to Brazil and she's like, here, just keep this, find a way to give it back to them. And I was like, well, now I'm going to watch this thing. <laughs> um, and I just remember like, you know, my hands are shaking and I popped in my DVD player because I kind of had a feeling it would be pretty amazing. And I cried. I really did cry pretty deeply, not so much for the pregnant women that would see that. Forgive me, what was the feature called, the documentary? The Business of Being Born. The um, Business of Being Born, yeah. her documentary produced by Goldie Lawn. Yeah. Goldie Hawn. Goldie, right. So then um, I... Um, produced by Goldie Hawn? Yeah. No, no, produced by Ricky Lake. <laughs> yeah, Ricky right. Lake, yeah. But that's all right. I mean, people will know. Stop looking at that magazine, Brian. Put that down. Oh, I should uh, put that down, yes, yeah. Right. That's but for Goldie, doctors to all their podcasts. But Goldie does look pretty in this picture, doesn't she? Yeah. Uh, well, that, in that yeah. picture, yes. Not, yes. not in the movie. No. Goldie is not in the movie. Ricky Lake is Goldie did not have a home Lake. birth, uh, her own home birth on video. So we're going to put Goldie Hawn on the shelf, and we're going to go back to Ricky Lake. Sure. I know where we are. Got it. <laughs> oh, my God. So it's interesting to me because when I talk to, you're like someone on the front lines of this. Dr. Stu and I do a podcast and it's a great one. It's all about home birthing, but you're someone. We have a lot of other topics too. We do. We have it. We go everywhere. Yes, we do. But you're a childbirth educator. Right. You're, are you a doula? I am a doula. You're a doula. Okay. So I ask you on the front lines in your real life with your cell phone ringing every day, you booking appointments, how's business uh, in Southern California here? Do you find that there's healthy business desiring your expertise in the area of home birthing or is it diminishing or is it in the middle i think there is a, a genuine curiosity for home birth right now i think you know i i was just at a conference and i heard eugene de clark giving a wonderful presentation about listening to mothers three and there is a, a clear understanding that women are more curious about home birth but women are particularly more curious about birth center. 22% mm. um, of women um, that gave birth, first baby in a hospital, answered that they would consider a birthing center for next time, when only about 19% would consider a home birth. Do they actually know that what a birthing center really means? Because I know well, that in, in one of the documentaries, in More Business of Being yeah. Born, we have a conversation about that. And a lot of people, there's a big difference between a birthing center that's freestanding and a birthing center that's part of a hospital institution that's basically just an extension of the hospital with, with a different label on it. Absolutely. And I think that that's a very good question because, you know, just like not all doctors are made alike, not all midwives are made alike. When women hear about a birth birthing center, there is a very difference of a hospital that just puts some pretty beds in there and, you know, a nicer decoration and, you know, maybe a couple nurse midwives and they call it a birthing center, but it's really just a hospital with, you know, a little, a little bit more freedom, but I, I actually mean, you, can, you can call a potato a, a Gucci handbag, but it's exactly. still a potato. But I know there are some hospitals around the country that actually, you know, do have pretty open-minded birthing centers. So, well, uh, I, uh, let's look at this. And yeah, go ahead. Let her, let her finish because I because I want to know which, uh, which. And I I do think quite honestly, um, that's where we're going next. I really think that hospitals are going to see these as a wonderful business. Since your question was about in regards to it increasing was. business, well, this is the thing that frightens me because. Hospitals will know that there's a demand out there, just like there's a demand for organic food. Mm -hmm. And so uh, traditional markets like Vons and Ralph's and stuff are having organic food sections now. I don't think you can sort of, if it's organic food, it's organic food. But if a hospital wants to do this, they're still under the same liability issues and regulations and, and, and policies and risk managers. And so you can call a birthing center anything you want to call it. 
but are they really going to let women walk around unmonitored eating in the shower, uh, leaving them, letting them be ruptured for a day and a half or two days uh, without Pitocin, without any interventions, with minimal vital signs and interruptions? Are they really going to let that happen in a hospital setting? I'm going to fight for it until I see it. You know, I really do believe it's going to happen. Maybe it's not going to happen in the next year or two, but I really believe we are going to move towards that way if women continue to ask what they want. You know, childbirth has become an industry which makes the woman a consumer. If she asks for what she wants and she's not going to pay unless she gets it, she can get it. Uh, and uh, Paula Markell is our special guest here on episode number 69 of Dr. Stu's podcast. Now, I asked you before we started the podcast, you have four kids of your own. I do. You have three girls and one baby boy, and, I, and, uh, and God bless. That's wonderful. Two C-sections, two born in the hospital, V-backs. Yep. Uh, you had four kids. Why did you make the decision to have all of them in the hospital have not at least one at home because now I'm sure you're advising young women to have their babies at home. I, I would never advise a woman to have a baby anywhere, but I will support them to have a baby anywhere, including igloos, canoes, teepees, anything they want. But um, I mean, your personal choices when it came to you and your family were very conservative. It was. It was. I you can call me conservative. Well, uh, VBAC after two C-sections is not necessarily conservative. Well, you also have to understand a couple things here, okay? Yeah. I was not an activist then. I was. I am a classic example of a woman that falls into a system and falls into fear traps. Also, as you probably just heard from um, your Our other... previous guest. Yes, right. that VBAC rates, they go up Podcast and go 68. down. And they go up right. and they go down. And, um, you know, I was in one of those VBACs downs moments when, you know, my first VBAC was 15 years ago. Mm. So um, when I told my doctor that I wanted to have a vaginal birth after two cesareans, the doctor I was seeing at the time, he made me feel I was crazy. He made me feel mm. I was irresponsible and uninformed. Um, and the classic, well, if you were my daughter, I would mm. never, you know, advise you that. Well, right now with four kids, uh, you don't plan on any more, do you, uh, Anna? <laughs> no, I think that I would gain a kid and lose a husband. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that, so, but the decision to, to be back in the hospital... It was uh, a, did you did you end up changing practitioners? Absolutely, yeah. it was a, a, a wonderful experience. I uh, was new in the, in the country. I really didn't have a lot of resources. I was watching a TV show on the midwives at UCLA doing a VBAC. I pick, pick up the phone, picked a number, and called UCLA, and by accident caught the midwife that was in the show and was entered out. And she said, come on over and we'll talk to me. That was my first yes. That was the first person that said, you know, both of your cesareans were scheduled. I don't know if you can do it or not, but you've never been given an opportunity. So she gave me um, Birthing from Within, the book, yep. and by, she, by Pam England, right. and she gave me Julie Freitas' number, the wonderful local childbirth educator who's been at it for 45 years. Um, yeah, Julie, Julie was, when I was a resident, Julie was a childbirth yeah. educator, and then we're talking a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, and Julie does pay people to switch to home births, by the way. She will give them $500 towards, you know, if you leave your doctor, and but that's... Oh, she know, does? She does. Uh, is that okay uh, to say that on radio? Yeah, it's okay. All right. Let uh, me ask you something, um, and I'm going to ask you, Anna Paula Markell. Uh, before you came to America... Yes. Where were you, for those who might not know? I was in Sao Paulo for most of it, although I did live in other parts of the world. In San well. Paulo. In San Paulo, yes. what was the 
culture, the orientation that folks had about home birthing I, in oh, San Paulo? Birthing in general. Birthing in general. I mean, home birth in Brazil is 10 years old, if that. Today, on national television in Brazil, national television, like our our... Oprah of Brazil did a piece on home birth with Giselle and Giselle's midwife. And, um, you know, so like Giselle is Giselle Binchin. Yeah. So this is Tom Brady. Yes, I do yeah, know. Yeah, okay. Because she had her babies at home and, you know, really wonderful, um, supportive, but that, when I had my baby's home birth, you know, like uh, unheard of. Um, I don't know anybody that has had a vaginal birth in Brazil until that point. Well, now I do, but back then I didn't. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's almost a cultural thing, isn't it? I mean, part of it is cultural, you know, and the, that's I the think wealthy women tend to have a cesarean section because yeah. that's the th- chic thing to do. Yeah, do you want me to describe my first birth to you? Well, were both your C sections in Brazil? No, one was here, one was in your Brazil. first one was in yeah, Brazil. Yeah. Okay, but describe them for us, sure. Okay, my first cesarean in Brazil was I wanted to have a vaginal birth because even though I didn't know anybody that had one, I had a fantasy of watching a child emerge out of me. I was very athletic, very healthy. I was 21 years old, very, very young. Um, And this guy was like, sure, sure, why not? And then three days after my due date, he's like, wow, you know, it's very dangerous now, you know, and you're so young, so you definitely need to have a cesarean. So I did, you know, there was no Google, there was no YouTube, or, you know, what the doctor said is really what was the deal. Um, and I did have, you know, quite a pleasant experience with my cesarean. It really wasn't scary. And at the time, ignorance is bliss. You know, I really thought I was making the best decision for my baby. And this year was 19... 1991. Okay. Um, so then uh, this baby, you know, comes out, goes to the nursery. I go to my room, everything, you know, pretty sweet. I saw her. She cried as soon as she came in. We kissed and, you know, she stopped crying and I just had that, you know, feeling of, yeah, we're going to be fine. But then it wasn't until about eight hours for me to see her again. I was then taken to a gorgeous suite. Um, I actually had my hair blow out and mm-hmm. I had a really special gown for when my guests came. My mom had ordered, um, you know, champagne and food. So I had like my room to rest and the other room was like social for And you had, you had obviously already given birth. Yes, my baby was in the nursery, which by the way was all glass. And across from the nursery, a piano bar. No joke. How People, nice. I mean, that's the culture, you know, and that was like what we saw as safe you know and fun how did how did it couldn't have been like that 50 years ago how did how did piano bars and social rooms in the between and separation of mother and baby become because i think you know evidence of what's best for the baby and the mother um, is second with you know what would be attractive for clients consumers and what is attractive to a woman who is fearful it's like hey you come to this hospital to this day all, all five stars hospitals in Sao Paulo have a hair salon. Hair salon, you pick up the phone, you order a pedicure, somebody comes in your room and give you a pedicure, which I think it's an awesome idea, but let's give her a pedicure after she sweats, gets down and dirty and push the baby right. out. Why can't she have a pedicure uh, while the baby's sucking on her breath? Exactly, exactly. Right. So it's not the pedicure that bothers me, it's the culture of, you know, get there, get the baby out. And it's, somebody, still, that, it's still that way right now in Brazil. If they want, yeah. But yeah. in Brazil now, there is a very loud, angry rightfully so extremely important birth movement and and it is it is changing slowly you know it is extremely uh, 
passionate, powerful movement. And it's a consumer-driven movement? It's definitely consumer-driven, although there are, you know, they call themselves Indians, like the, the activists in Brazil, they just say we're raw Indians and we just, um, and I'm very proud. I mean, I go to Brazil twice a year to teach and, and get involved with those guys because they are extremely And there are some there are some physicians leading the way there too. I know that there are some, yeah, uh, Jones. One of the, a couple of leading breach uh, people that do breach down in Brazil yeah, too. Yeah, yep, that. Which would be extraordinarily abnormal uh, in a country that has, like you said, a 90% cesarean exactly. section, right? Well, Naoli, the Mexican midwife, is living in Brazil now, and she's attending births in Florianopolis. So there is a really some awesome... And so then you came to the United States, and your second was your second baby just an elective repeat C-section? No, I was planning on a VBAC, and at 35 weeks, I was told, ah, your baby's just not growing as expected. You know, VBAC was a nice idea, but you do better outside than on the inside. Um, had a C-section at 35 weeks. 35? weeks and she was five pounds 11 ounces which at 35 weeks is perfectly normal and that's when the activist in me was born because you know at that point i felt extremely angry and betrayed because i had been an extremely good patient you know i really did not question um and and that's also when i learned that you know being a mother is also a responsibility. You have to be responsible for your care. You know, you can't just believe what people well, tell that's, you. Well, that's, uh, that's reconstructing good out of the ashes because it's really gr we're really grateful that you are an activist because you are doing so many good things for the community here in Los Angeles and also um, you're fairly well known you know, across the country. Um, locally, there have been some uh, efforts to try to right. bring some normalcy back to hospital birthing. I know that you've been involved with one of our local hospitals here. Um, you told me on a personal side, I'm going to bring this up, that you know, you're a little bit frustrated with the way you know, things are moving at glacier speed. And uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit about what's, what's happening to try to bring some normalcy back to the birthing world and also why things tend to get bogged down. Yeah, so I'm an only child and I'm pretty used to have an idea, start working on it. If I want to change my mind, I change it, but I finish, you know, and, and working in a big institution, you have to go through so many siblings that I'm not used to that. You know, you, you have to have that's an a, that's idea. A good, that's a good analogy. Yeah. You, yeah. you have to have an idea. You have to be voted on. You have to propose your idea in a formal way. You know, you have to... 16 committees later. Exactly. You know, so I'm, I'm learning to, to accept that if I want change, I have to adjust to their pace, maybe push as much as I can without breaking it. Um, but it's it's a dance, you know, one of the things Brazilians say is dance according to the music. And right. this, this is a very slow music for me. Well, I'll, you tell, you, I'll tell you that, that it's interesting to s when you say that, because I understand the slowness of getting ch things to change in a way that may be better. But why is it why is it when something comes along that sort of favors the hospital model that the change is instituted immediately, like a VBAC ban, or like a uh, uh, something comes along and there's a one article about the dangers of water birth and so suddenly all the tubs why doesn't it take a year and a half to get all the tubs moved out of the hospital how come they can do those things instantly but they can't make positive change instantly why what's your thought on that I mean, I already know the answers, but I just yeah. want, I want our listeners to hear from you. Well, I think that it has a lot to do with which evidence people choose to read and what evidence that they choose to believe. You know, like pretty much these days, and I, I was just listening to all these wonderful experts at this conference talking about that you basically, you can prove anything on a study and it really depends who is paying for it, you know. And research was really created to be for let's put a study together and see what result we find. But sure. where we are today is no, is... This is what I want to prove in my study, and I'm going to put a study together to prove my point, which is, makes it, you know, a subversive study. This is episode 69 of Dr. Stu's podcast. Of course, I'm Brian Whitman. Our special guest is Anna 
Paula Markle. Markel. Markel. All right. Uh, she's a childbirth educator. If folks uh, want to reach you, Anna, and, and learn more about what a childbirth educator does, what's an email that they can uh, reach out to you at? Anna Paula, A-N-A-P-A-U-L-A, at BeanieBirth.com. And BeanieBirth is B-I-N-I birth.com. Okay. And, and then you have a website, too, that's... BeanieBirth.com. BeanieBirth.com. Spell BeanieBirth. B-I-N-I-B-I-R-T-H. Good. The cool thing about a podcast, people can always drop the needle back and listen to it again. Yeah, that is actually one of the cool things. Plus, right. they get to hear the sweet voice of Brian Whitman. They get to hear that. Yes, they they do. Lucky. <laughs> they do get to hear that. So, what do you think is? What do you think? Uh, you know, is the is the one greatest challenge? If you could, if you could magically, if you could magically knock down an obstacle mm-hmm. to the acceptance of home birth by mainstream America and the world. What is that one obstacle? Or I, I want to I amend his question because I want to say not just home birth, but the acceptance of the normalcy of birth and as opposed to looking at birth as an illness and sometimes it goes right, it, looking at well, getting people to look at birth as a normal function of the woman's body. What would be that yeah, one be that challenge you'd have to eradicate to get real close to that hypothetical reality? I would say it's a um, subversive evidence and also people's interpretation of evidence. I do think that, you know, the studies are very strong in favor of home birth. Or so you got to keep, you got to keep pumping out the studies. You got to keep teaching women how to look at studies and interpret for themselves and not just hear, because, you know, most of the things that most doctors give to women is not evidence, it's their opinion. Um, you know, and that's valid. I mean, I think women should hear to their provider's opinion, but they should know when is their provider's opinion and when it's an evidence and how to look for evidence. Unfortunately, you know, women have to do a lot of work before they just believe in well, two two thirds of evidence that is promoted by the American College of OBGYN is not based on science at, at all. It's based on consensus opinion. And of the third that's based on evidence, some of it is good evidence, but a lot of it, as Anna Paula says, and we've discussed on this podcast many times, is ideologically and economically driven. And people have a cognitive dissonance to basically choose the, to, the evidence that supports their position and ignore the evidence that, that uh, doesn't support their position. And this is where the ethics of the whole thing comes in. I mean, we, we as practitioners have an ethical responsibility to give true information to our, our clients and let them come to a decision. And then as long as that decision is not insane, we have an ethical obligation to respect their decision. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we have to support what they're doing, but we do have to be supportive of their choices and say, listen, you know, I don't do VBAC or my hospital doesn't do VBAC, but VBAC is a reasonable option according to a lot of sources, including the NIH. If you're interested in a VBAC, you can look at other options like going to that hospital over there or maybe seeing that doctor there or even talking to a midwife and having an out-of-hospital birth. birth. I can't support an out-of-hospital birth, and I personally think that that may not be okay or something, but it's not a a completely reasonable choice. Saying things like, what, you want a dead baby? Or, you know, as our friend Jim Gaffigan would say, you know, well, we thought about about that, but we wanted our baby to live. Yeah, the comic. Which which boils back to the manipulative consent, which, you know, they make it sound like informative consent, but, you know, so they will tell women, okay, you have this choice or this choice, but what they're really saying is, you know, if you want to be crazy and crunchy and risk your baby's life and follow your plan, that's cool, but you can also be responsible and mature and follow my plan yeah, and right. we'll deliver you you know a healthy baby right. yeah i mean that's in their view could be look like informed consent but that was 
manipulation. Yeah, yeah. Your kid can go on the street and play with razor blades, or your kid can play right. with these 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 uh, you know, these toys, these tinker toys. Uh, I do want to go back a little bit to the hospital, though, because you know I tend to be like the Pollyanna of the story. Otherwise, I'll just stay home and watch TV. You know, <laughs> like I mean, I have to believe something's yeah, uh, gonna and change. And this is the this is an important point because this is where I really wanted to hear from you today. Right. I mean, so I do feel like the fact that I am there and that they're listening to me. That's already you know ten years ago I would never imagine that I would be part of committees inside a hospital. Okay. Um, so, are you working in a hospital five six hours five six no, days no, a week? No, no, I'm not an employee, but I'm part of two task forces that okay. I go there monthly for meetings. Okay. And and I do have to say they do value the opinion. They want to know what women are telling doulas. Good. They want to know what doulas are saying. They want to know what issues doulas are facing in the unit. Um, so it's not perfect, but it's moving in the right direction. We cool. still have a lot of work to do. Cool. Um, but we now have a, like a doula committee. You know, like we do have like six other doulas that have meetings in there too. Um, so there is a lot of dialogues and there is a lot of, you know, um, questions, um, not so much the answers, but... I, I think that, uh, I think that the, the, the regular employees of the hospital, the nurses and the residents uh, uh, are, have a thirst for knowledge and a yeah, thirst for these options. Sure they and do. And I think they really want to learn the skills of normal birth. They want to learn breech delivery. They want to learn forcep delivery. They're just not being taught these things. And, and you know, I think somebody like me is pretty much too caustic and too too radical for the hospital because I think I told you on this podcast before that I was invited to give a talk to the residents at Cedar Sinai, which is a local hospital here, and the person that I talked to was very enthusiastic about it. About a, six, eight weeks went by. I didn't hear back from them. I wrote her an email, and she sent me an email saying thank you very much, but but you know we, on further review we've decided to take our didactic teaching in a different direction. Now. They don't, in mid-semester, take their didactic teaching in a different direction. What it meant is that this enthusiastic person went to somebody higher up who said, no effing way are we going to have that, that sort of lecture for our residents. He's not uh, on staff. He's not an academician. He's a firebrand physician. Well, whatever. I don't, you know, I don't know what they said, but why would you deny your residents an opportunity to learn another way? I mean, I'm happy to debate somebody. I'm happy to have an open debate with sure. people. but. There, you know, I don't necessarily get invited to that because I think I have my my history is a little bit, a bit caustic. I just want to put it out there that I'm willing to be soft and fluffy if anybody wants to have this conversation in an academic uh, setting. Anna Paula Markell, I did it perfectly. Perfectly, Brian. Perfect. Yeah. Um, in how many years? If you even want to answer that question, in how many years will conversations like these no longer be necessary? <laughs> um, I think if everything goes really well, twenty. 20 years from now. Yeah, and that's optimistic. Yeah, cool. I think that's, you know, what yeah. would be for my daughters, hopefully. Yeah, and, and in my in my semi-sarcastic way, I think when the current uh, uh, leaders of our, so-called leaders of our profession retire mm -hmm. or die off and a younger generation who's more accepting of and these sort of things. that's coming pretty soon. <laughs> I, think I, I, think I, I think I have one, one way that may get us to change that stuff. You know, Sooner, like, you mean? Yeah, like oh. I, mean, I think like the, the the microbiome conversation. You know, like that now they're doing this stuff with you know vaginal swab in yes. a woman when she's having a C-section, and then they put that vaginal mucus in the baby nose and mouth, nose right. and mouth. Right. So you know, like if if this research really comes out with good results, if we really get you know medical community to pay attention that long-term consequences of this cesarean crisis could really be affecting you know the future of humankind we do have a chance of getting there a little quicker yeah and, um, and, and the epigenetic argument exactly. as well and there is a lot of serious work being done in I've universities read about, i've read about over. that i've read about it you yeah. know again here's mr cynical comes inside and says 
you know, sooner or later, and I, you know, I'm not a big fan of our American legal profession, but I think much of what's being done in the hospital setting is done on a fear-based uh, reality to the fact that they are trying to avoid lawsuits, which of course is a fiduciary duty of the hospital. It's responsible to them. They want to stay in business. They want to keep their doors open. But if we start seeing evidence, that strong evidence that the microbiome and that uh, in inductions and cesarean sections are, are certainly at too high a level, and we were just talking earlier with our previous guest, uh, a woman who has a bad outcome, say after a VBAC, where she ruptures her uterus, and then you look back at the first cesarean section and you find that it was completely unnecessary. Well, yeah. um, are there? Are, is it going to take legal action uh, the other way, going after hospitals for doing wrongful interventions and wrongful cesareans to make them look at it? Or can we get a simpler thing? Like one of the solutions I've always suggested is just have insurance companies pay more for doctors to do vaginal birth and pay well, them less. That, that is one of the things. That is one of the policies. It takes that more skill and more time anyway. They are looking to see. I think like the third or fourth reason for cesareans is uh, physicians being tired. You know, so like, I mean, giving guys longer breaks and having somebody else, you know, uh, your backup that's going to follow up the same mindset that you promised your client, like all of those things, or, you know, nurse midwives in a hospital. So I think there are many ways that we can look into improve that. Also, I think, you know, all like six is the new four, again, is a great start from ACOG, you know, considering active labor at six centimeters. But we still have the majority of the hospitals in this country following Friedman's curve. Yes. So all of that stuff has to be reevaluated. Six is the new four is a good start. But when you have Zhang telling us that, you know, a first time mom labor can can last up to 38, 40 week, 40 hours, hours. you know, yeah. why are we expecting one centimeter an hour when that study was only 500 women that were healthy, that 300 are right? You know, it's ridiculous. It's All right. a study. You okay. know. Yeah. Anna, Paula, Markel, let's get, uh, I did it right. Yeah. Right no, no. I'm laughing yeah, we're just we're just on a roll here, yeah. Brian. Brian's our our non-medical person who comes in. <laughs> no, I come in to try to keep the. Uh, my role my role is to keep the show on. The yeah, road, yeah, right? I know, I know. We hate time limits. We hate that. You want to exactly. talk more? I th oh, I, mean, I could talk with Anna all, all, I know all day you long, could. right? But that's why you know you got to hold them wanting more. That's the idea, right? Here. Okay, so we're gonna have Anna back on a future podcast. We will podcast have Anna too. back. This has been podcast number sixty-nine, Doctor Stu's podcast. We'll see you all next time for podcast seventy. Anna, Paula, Markel, if folks want to make contact with you one more time, hit them with the email or the website. Beniebirth.com. Spell yeah, and B I N I B I R T H dot com. And if you have questions for Anna or for me, uh, email me at askdrstew at gmail.com and I will bring them to Anna and Anna and we can talk about them and I can talk about them on a future podcast. If there's enough people, we'll get Anna back on soon. It's, it's lovely to have these people locally, like Jen from the previous podcast and Anna Paula from this podcast and Dr. Berlin from a previous podcast. I mean, we have a great. Set. We had a wonderful, beautiful... Uh, we have a wonderful family surrounding Dr. <laughs> Stu's podcast. Send your emails, as Dr. Stu mentioned. If it's for Dr. Stu, ask at drstu at gmail.com. Thank you, Anna, Paula, Markel. You were wonderful. And to our previous guest on Podcast 68, next time it's Lucky Podcast 70. Thanks for joining us. You're so loyal. Put it out there on your Facebook. Subscribe on iTunes. Share it on Twitter. We want to get the word out about Dr. Stu's podcast, okay? Okay, Brian. All right. For my friend, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, I'm Brian Whitman. Yes, you are. Hope you have a great night. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Anna Paula. Thank you. Thank you.